Please turn in your Bibles again to the chapter 18 of Matthew. We're continuing this uh, discourse of Jesus, this uh, section of teaching. Sort of taking our time as we go through it uh, because there is so much here. Do you love life? Now, I don't mean this present existence. Okay, I want to shift our thinking here uh, to echo the thoughts of, of Jesus. So when I ask you if you love life, I'm not asking if you love this present existence. Now, there are many pleasant and beautiful, wonderful aspects of life in this time and in this place. Uh, but you know, and I know that this, what we call life, is very fleeting it's just a breath, to use Ecclesiastes' expression. Psalm 90, verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or even if by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. We fly away. That was an old song that I heard often growing up, and it really conveys that idea of the passing quickness of life. Now, old people like me are very much in touch with that. Um, it's interesting to me that we, we speak of people having passed away. In, in a very real sense, we're all passing away right now. Right? You will never recapture the moment you're in right now. You can't go back and live last year. This life is passing quickly. So when I ask, do you love life? I'm saying, do you long for true life? For life that does not end. For life that doesn't pass away. For life that is not marred by the principles of decay and degeneration that characterize this present existence. That's what I'm asking when I ask if you love life. That's the life that Jesus spoke about so often, isn't it? Matthew chapter 7, verses, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You catch the implication of what he's saying there. You say, you're not alive yet. You haven't entered life yet. Are you striving to enter life? That's what he's saying to us. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, by which he means his sheep, his chosen ones, may have life and have it abundantly. Psalm 34 Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
And how does he identify the fear of the Lord? Here it is. What man is there who desires life? Very strong term there. Who longs for life, you say, and loves many days that he may see good. Well, I could go on. There are so many passages that uh, tie in Jesus with life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I draw your attention to life as Jesus defines it so that we can rightly understand what he's saying in our text today. This is one of the so-called hard sayings of Jesus. And you need some hard thinking to go with it. Hard thinking, but humble hearts. Let's see if we can bring that to God's word this morning. I'm going to begin at the beginning of chapter 18 to give us again the context of the teaching as a whole is developing the theme of humility, but our focus is going to be on verses 8 and 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You'll notice the progression in this teaching. Okay, Jesus is, is a genius of a teacher, okay? Look for the genius in this teaching. He's given us this key principle in the beginning. Remember, he takes this occasion, the disciples, as usual, not really thinking correctly, but he seizes upon the question that they raised to, to bring to their, bring to them, to bring to us an extremely important principle. And so we've looked at that already. That principle is humility. That the essential characteristic of the kingdom of God, and remember that's not a geographic territory, that's a people, that's you, if you have acknowledged him as king. The central characteristic 
of the king's people is humility. He says you won't get in to the kingdom, you won't belong to the kingdom without humility. And the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is humble. It's all about humility. So keep in mind that key principle. He's, he's now unfolding the application of that, the implications of that, through the rest of this chapter. And last week we focused in on the implication that, that if humility characterizes us, if humility characterizes you as a follower of Christ, then you're going to exercise great care you're going to strive to be careful not to offend a little one, one who has faith in Christ, your fellow believers. You see how that requires humility? Because you're thinking about them rather than yourself. Okay? And you say, remember Jesus is using all kinds of literary devices here, and he uses, he uses hyperbole a lot, and he uses that in that text that we looked at last Lord's Day. And he uses it again in the verses that we look at today. Last, last week, he, he said, in effect, your attitude about being so careful about offending a little one, a, a humble believer, your attitude should be, well, it should be as if you say, I would rather die than be an occasion for a little one to stumble in their faith. Okay? I, I am so concerned, should be your attitude, I am so concerned for my fellow believer that I would rather die than do something which could lead them astray. Do you see the connection between humility and love as well? Right? Humble person loves. And out of that love and that humility is born this concern for one another. Wouldn't you love to be part of a church characterized by that? I, I mean, that would really give you the feeling that everybody, uh, all of your fellow believers have your back. Right? All of your fellow believers are, are pulling for you. They're, they're anxious that you, that you persevere in your faith. That you have a successful walk with Christ. That you're obedient to him and, and living in harmony with him. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a church like that? And of course to be a part of a church like that you be like that, right? Well, that, that was a great message that he gave us in those verses. But look at, notice, notice he uses verse 7 as a transition, and we won't dwell on that a, a lot. Uh, he, he sort of pronounces the opposite of the good that comes out of humility here. and It's really a... a in a sense, a curse, okay, in contrast to a blessing. Remember, he has all the blessings in the uh, Sermon on the Mount? Well, the opposite of saying blessed is, is to say woe is, and so that's what he gives here. This is the opposite of that blessing of the Sermon on the Mount. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's going to be inevitable. 
It's going to be inevitable that people put stumbling blocks in front of you. That some people you count on let you down. That even people that are believers occasionally do things that hurt you and, and, and cause you to be tempted to respond in an ungodly way. It's necessary that they come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You don't want to be that person. It's inevitable that people are going to be offended. But you don't want to be that person. I know you don't. Jesus is warning us here. Well, with that as a transition, you'll notice in verses 8 and 9 that we look at today, now the focus is on you. It's interesting, isn't it? Gives us that principle of humility. Tells us how to be worked out in our relationship with other people. And now he says, okay, I want you to apply this to yourself. I want you to apply this concern, this concern that those who believe in Christ, those who are following Christ, not stumble in their faith, not be led astray, not be tempted to sin. I want you to transfer that concern to yourself as well. And I want you to do it with a passion. I don't want you to be halfway about it. I want you to be all in on godliness. I want you to be all in on righteousness. I want you to be all in and not not causing offense to yourself. That's really the language he's using here, right? Or you read that cause to sin? That's the same verb we saw earlier from that Greek term, remember, for the, the trigger stick in a trap for an animal? Okay, uses that to illustrate, you know, causing someone else to sin. Don't be that trigger stick that that traps them, would not be that for yourself. That's what he's saying. So it's the same idea, causing to sin, that he's dealing with here. And he deals with it with very strong language, doesn't he? Now, Jesus has said that we're to be humble like child, children. Humble like a child. That does not mean to be naive or ignorant, okay? Jesus' teaching calls you to use your mind, to use your brain. So you ought to be intelligent, and you ought to be thoughtful in hearing what he's got to say, but with a humble heart, okay? You want to enter modesty, humility, but a mental sharpness. You want to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So to do that, you need to read carefully and you need to recognize the literary devices that Jesus is using here. Okay, you don't want to check your mind out here like some critics do and say, well, you know, this is really... Really strange. Jesus is telling people to maim themselves. 
Jesus is, Jesus is telling us that, well, if something happens to you physically, that's going to be perpetuated in eternity. That's foolishness. That's reading childishly with a childish mind. Okay, a child cannot recognize these literary devices, but you're smart enough to do so. So you do. You realize that he's using hyperbole here, just like he did before. He's deliberately exaggerating for the sake of effect. Okay? He wants you to feel passionately about what he's telling you to do here. And so he uses deliberate exaggeration to drive it home to you. How concerned should you be about sin in your life? To what degree should you be on guard against falling into sin. First, we say falling into sin, usually we run into it. <laughs> and how concerned should you be for your own temptation to sin? We've just seen you're supposed to be very concerned about being a cause for temptation to someone else. How, how concerned should you be about it? Well, you should be very concerned, Jesus says. You ought to you ought to be violent, in a sense, about sin in your life. You need to rip out any causes for temptation. Now again, he's using hyperbole here, so he's using parts of the body in his illustration. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out and throw it away. Well, we know he's already made it perfectly clear to us the sin is right in the heart, okay, and, and not the physical heart, okay, the spiritual heart. It's not a matter of the external. So, so he's not contradicting himself here. But he's saying, I want you to look for those things that would cause you to sin, be temptations for you to sin, and I want you to rip them out of your life. I want you to be passionate about godliness. And to be passionate about godliness, you have to take sin seriously. You have to realize how bad it is. And that's where we see the other, other literary device here, which is not really as clear in our English translations. But notice the alternative, okay? If you don't do this, Jesus says, you're in danger of this. Okay, the, the hinge point in, in both verses, both these statements would just echo one another. He's repeating the same thing for emphasis. The hinge point is, it is good, or it is better. The Greek doesn't have a, a superlative sense here like we do, better, but that's what's meant here. It uses the word translated someplace as good, but in the context we know we're supposed to translate that better. Okay, so the hinge point is better. This is better than that. Okay. 
So what's this alternative that he wants us to avoid? End of verse 8. Fire that is never extinguished. In the end of verse 9, the English translations usually have here hell of fire. There's actually, the Greek word for hell does not show up in the New Testament. Not in the sense of hell that we use. It's the word that could possibly be translated as hell is used in the sense of punishment in a couple of places, but, but this is a different word. Uh, if you want to learn a little Greek, this is Gehenna. Okay, it's not a really hard word to, to remember, Gehenna. It's a, an abbreviation, a shortened version, for Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. When the Jews took the promised land, or actually when they were given the promised land by God, when he enabled them to receive the promised land, the land was divided into territories according to the tribes. And the border between Judah and Benjamin, which was just outside the city of Jerusalem, that, that part of that border was a valley. What's called a wadi because it has a flowing stream in the wet season. It's pretty dry in the dry season, dries up. But that's very characteristic of valleys in that part of the world. And so there's this valley that is identified as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. A man by the name of Hinnom evidently owned it and went to his sons. And it was shortened over time to the term Gehenna. And there's nothing wrong with that valley. Okay, I'm sure it's a very, very attractive place, especially when the, in the rainy season, vegetation would spring up along the the riverbed there, many of those wadis maintain greenery even during the dry season because the plants can put on roots to the water that's under the ground. That particular valley, just outside the city of Jerusalem, became a horrible place. Under the rule of kings Ahaz and Manasseh, Jews started worshiping idols in that valley, especially idols to the gods Baal and the, and the god Moloch. And as that worship progressed, it reached, to the, it reached the point of the Jews, even some of the rulers, sacrificing their own children burning them alive before Baal and Moloch. Of course, that's in direct contradiction to the law in Leviticus, which absolutely forbade that. But in the degeneration of the country, they become ultimately even worse than the pagans, and so they're imitating the pagan practices there. Prophet Jeremiah specifically preaches against that. 
And he speaks of the places of worship where that horrible practice happens with the term tophus. There's a little street in New Ipswich named Tophet, and I'm always intrigued every time I go by that. Who on earth names the street after the places of fire where children were burned? That's what it means. Places of fire. Tophet. Jeremiah goes out to that valley under the inspiration of God and he breaks an earthenware pot and he says, just like this, God is going to break the nation that let this happen. And he's going to turn these so-called worship places into a place of slaughter. You killed your children here God's going to kill you here. And there'll be so many bodies, they can't even be buried. Now that happened. That happened. King Hezekiah, though before the fall of the nation, King Hezekiah initiated a reform movement in Judah. And he sought to stamp out, he was not successful long term, but he sought to stamp out pagan worship. And one of the places that he attacked was Gehenna. He said, I don't want that happening anymore. And so he goes into that or sends his men into that place to destroy those idol uh, altars and to desecrate them, to purposely contaminate them so that they wouldn't be used by, for that again. And Gehenna becomes something like a garbage dump for Jerusalem. And people take their refuse there, and they burn it there. They take unclean carcasses there. Even the bodies of some executed criminals, sometimes thrown into that body when when they're deemed not worthy of burial. When Jesus wants to give you an alternative, a contrast to the life that he offers, he uses Gehenna as the example. So at the end of verse 9, he actually says, and he uses this term over and over again, Gehenna, of fire. That's the alternative to the abundant life that I come to offer, is the Gehenna of fire. It's his way, his name for hell. Echoing the words of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 30, where Isaiah speaks of punishment with a fire that is never quenched, and a worm that never dies. Jesus uses that exact same expression. It's the place, in other words, of perpetual death. Endless death. What is called later in Revelation, the second death. 
Jesus cares about sin because he cares about righteousness because he cares about his people. When you face a cause for sin, when you when you detect in yourself a temptation for sin, Jesus says, I want you to remember. It'd be better to tear your eye out than to go to hell. That's literally what he's saying, isn't it? Now again, he's speaking hyperbolically here. He's, He's not telling you to mutilate your body. Okay, that's the wrong way to interpret this. But he wants the image to stick, I think. I wonder if it would have been if Simon had remembered that. You remember the Last Supper where he says, Oh, Jesus, all the rest of them will fall away. I'll be there for you. I've got your back. Jesus says, I'm praying for you, praying for you, Simon, because Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. I'm praying for you because I know you're going to deny me three times. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Simon had remembered this passage and thought, I'd rather tear my tongue out than deny my Lord. Or David, on top of that palace, where he shouldn't have been, he should have been with his troops in the field. But his feet didn't take him to the battle. His eyes looked on Bathsheba with lust. How wonderful it had been if he'd have said to himself, I'd rather tear out my eyes than to commit adultery with this woman, the wife of one of my best warriors. Are you getting the idea? Jesus cares passionately about you. He wants you to enjoy that abundant life, and he wants you to begin enjoying that abundant life now. He wants you to enter into that life of righteousness now. To grow in godliness now. To put sin to death now. In fact, that's how Paul describes the Christian life on more than one occasion, isn't it? It's a putting sin to death. I've been crucified with Christ, he says. I put sin to death in my life that I might live live to righteousness. Jesus wants that for you now. He wanted that for you so passionately, with such fervor. And the Father wanted that for you with such love. Spirit 
wants that for you as a believer right now with such intensity that Jesus Christ himself was offered the sacrifice for sin. He was cut off. He was cut off for your sake. He paid the ultimate price so that you could be filled with His Spirit and in His strength you can say, I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to have the humility to confess I'm tempted to sin in this area and I'm going to pray for God's strength to cut that off for his glory. Will God be pleased with that? Your Lord will be delighted to see you putting sin to death. He will he will rejoice to see you growing in godliness, to see the transforming work that happens in you as you grow in him. All it takes is humility, right? All it takes is the humble confession that you're a sinner and in need of grace. And he's right there, right there, to give you strength and wisdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to, to have a more clear vision of ourselves, of sin, the abundant life that you came to give us. We want, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you, and we confess that we so often fall short. We cling to that which we should not cling to, and we shun that which we should embrace. Help us, Lord, not to cling to sin, but rather to cling to you. Not to shun godliness, but rather to embrace it the strength that you give to your people. We know we can't do this by ourselves, in ourselves. But as we trust you, we believe your word, that you enable us to grow in godliness for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.